if you think I'm a good writer, it's all credit to her because she oh, okay. how to use comments Fair. and everything properly. Next guest. Next guest. <laughs> Hey there, if you've joined the podcast today, my name is Chris Jarvis. I work with companies on employee giving and volunteering programs. And my name is Jake McIsaac. I spend a lot of time thinking about public safety and restorative justice. So we are having conversations here that we've been having for 20 years. Yeah, the only difference now is we press record and share it with you. Thanks for joining us. On today's episode, we welcome a guest, Alex Bedak. He is a social entrepreneur, a UC Berkeley faculty member, and the author of the upcoming book, Becoming a Changemaker. So guess what the topic is? Keeping things the same. Yes. No, wait, no. Oh, man, <laughs> we got to change all this. Okay, let's get into it. All right, Jake, as you know, uh, we promised everybody, in fact, you talked about it on our last episode, that we would be having guests on the show this season, and we've done it a few times. We're thrilled to be doing it again today. One more time. Let's do it. All right. Alex Budak is a social entrepreneur, a UC Berkeley faculty member, and the author of a book that has just been released. You can get it on Amazon. I get a pre-copy, which is kind of cool. Becoming a Changemaker. Uh, let, let me tell you a little bit about Alex, and then we'll have him come on and say hello and fill in what I got wrong. Alex co-founded Start Some Good, which is a platform that helps break down barriers to prevent people from enacting change. So that's the topic of what we're talking about today. So lots of history in his life around this topic. With his amazing team, Alex helped over a thousand change makers in 50 countries raise $12 million. Welcome to the show, Alex. How long ago was that part of your life start some good. Thank you for having me. That started uh, 10 years ago now. 10 years ago. Okay. And you're still on the advisory board. That's right. Because now you lecture at UC Berkeley and the focus of your work there is on change, right? That's the special class. Tell us a little bit about how that works and, and what uh, that class is about. Oh, it's such a joy and a privilege to get to teach this class. It's a class I wish I could have taken when I was in school. So it's called Becoming a Changemaker. And it's all about how you can learn to lead positive change from wherever you are, no matter your role, no matter your sector, no matter your background, your experience, how you can lead change in a way that's true to who you are. That sounds awesome. I, I, I'm going to see if we can put that to the test today. I'm going to put you to the, uh, the security guard test. Let's make it, <laughs> let's bring it to Main Street. Let's figure out if we could do it in a blue collar world. Let's, that's kind of where we've been going on some of these. So it's going to be an exciting, I, no, I did not, Chris, get a pre-copy. So no. I had to go deep yeah. into Google okay. and YouTube and I'm, I'm going to put all of these, you know, well, it's a bit braggadocious, but you, you, you've got a pre-copy <laughs> and I'm going to go with the articles and the YouTube clips. We'll put them in the show notes, Yeah. but it's been really cool to read up on uh, some of the work that Alex has been doing in the last few years. So we're going to attack today from a change from an inclusive perspective, which you touch on a little bit in the book. And just so everybody knows, Alex isn't like a flash in the pan here. He has been leading discussions and doing presentations on this topic for a few years, from Ukraine to Cambodia, uh, L.A. to the Arctic Circle, even U.N. agencies, as well as the Obama White House. You've gotten around uh, in the career, so we're thrilled to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, let's kick it off. Why did you write a book? I know everybody will notice that it is kind of the book version of your class, but what was it that made you go through somewhat of a grueling process of book writing? You know, they don't tell you quite how hard it is to write a book at the beginning of it. I think it should come with like more of a warning label on it. Yeah, just write a page a day or something and that never, ever 
seems to work out for people. I don't know. None of the hacks are true. It, 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 it just takes hard work and a grind. But I'm so grateful to my amazing editor who made the process a lot less painful. And if you think I'm a good writer, it's all credit to her because she oh, okay. taught me how to use commas Fair. and everything properly. Next guest. Next guest. <laughs> I found that the content that I've been teaching has really found a wonderful home at, at Berkeley. It's been just as an educator. It's so rewarding to see how students from all walks of life have taken the messages from the class, put it into action and led all kinds of amazing change. But at the same time, I want the lessons to be accessible to people anywhere. And so a book is an amazing vehicle for doing so. And so that was really the motivation to say, okay, we've got something that I think is working here. Now, how can we adapt it on a, a wider scale? So maybe we can talk a little bit about that application then. I was wondering if maybe we could just jump right in and start talking about change. And one of the things that I've uh, read from some of your previous work was that you say you need to challenge the status quo or really question it anyway. You just sit there with it. I think in one article, or maybe it was a podcast I was listening to, when you see something that bothers you, don't just respond right away. Sit with it. Have patience. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So there's this quote that's attributed to Albert Einstein, but in doing the research for the book, I'm pretty sure he didn't say it, uh, but <laughs> it's a wonderful quote regardless. And I think the concept is good. So Einstein or whomever said, okay, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes solving it. I think that's the right way to think about it. We tend to be a bit backwards, which is that we're quite reactive. But when we think about, especially taking like a systems lens to solving problems, it's so crucial that you understand the actual problem that you're solving. So in the university world, when we teach systems thinking, there's sometimes this analogy, which is imagine you're blindfolded and all these people are standing around an elephant. Well, one person might be holding on to the tail and say, oh, well, this thing is a brush. Then one might be sitting by a leg and going, oh, this is a wall. And so if you only see part of a problem, you don't really understand the problem. And sometimes it takes sitting with a problem to deeply understand it, to look at it from different angles. Now, of course, the other part of that is that when we go into problem solving, we will be leaning into our own blind spots, our own biases, and we may not really fully understand the problem, especially when we're looking to solve a problem that's maybe something more acutely felt by others. Um, we can't be sure that we have the full picture ourselves. And so I think it's a good practice that before jumping right in, that you sit with a problem a little bit. Now, there's a number of sort of polarities when it comes to change making. So we don't want to say you just sit on a problem forever and ever and ever right. because you do have to take action. But in working with all kinds of change makers, I found that usually we benefit from just taking a pause, just taking a little bit of time to sit with, to try to understand, to look at a problem from all perspectives before taking action. That tends to pay off. How do you get those extra perspectives around you? Like, yeah. how do you get access to that then? You're sitting with it, you see something, you've said that it it matters that you have a range of uh, perspectives and, and, and that makes sense. Well, how, how do you start that process to get those folks to buy in? And before you answer, we know that our neural net is constructed in the way that it is, and we can only see the world through that construct. So to actually think about things differently, we need experiences to generate a chemical called acetylcholine, which triggers neuroplasticity. So new neural networks can connect and we can actually think differently. So that's the kind of the neuroscience behind thinking differently. Um, but it typically involves experiences over a period of time in order to be able to take that in. So what does sitting look like? Is it sitting and contemplating based on our current neural net? Or do we actually need to do something more proactively in sitting in order to be able to actually see it differently? 
Oh, yeah. Thank you. So sitting is maybe the wrong verb here because sitting feels like it's just kind of sitting in a windowless room for a few minutes and then saying, yeah. So no, that's not what I mean. What I mean is simply just pausing our bias towards jumping in right away. So I'm a huge fan of the work that Joanna C. and Jess Remington have done. Um, This is while they were at Stanford. And they wrote an amazing paper called Designing with the Beneficiary. So I think there's a really bad habit in sort of elite bubbles, academia, consulting, et cetera, which is where you go, okay, your assignment is to go design a school in Rwanda, even though you've never been to Rwanda and you are not an educator. And instead, they do really compelling research about why it's so crucial to design with the beneficiary. And that helps with blind spots and getting out to know what people actually need, because who knows better than the community themselves what it is that they need. And so in saying sitting with the problem, I don't mean sitting by ourselves. I mean, giving ourselves that pause of time to fill in some of those blind spots. And it actually does require some action, requires conversation, requires applied empathy, requires getting outside of our office, uh, but doing so not with saying, I know the exact answer, I'm going to go do it, but with some curiosity. I love that coming, um, it, it, it because it sounds so similar to uh, work that was being done out of Oakland, out of the uh, healthcare systems, particularly with community, uh, communities and persons of color, a response to cultural competency being cultural humility and really allowing people to be the subject matter experts of their own experiences. So really taking that in terms of your, that pause and being inquisitive and asking people how to, how to participate in that and that work that, that makes a lot of sense. And so you say you're not sitting, it's not passive, you're active, you're, 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 you're gathering these things. How do you know when this, when to, when to shift, when to get out of that and let's, let's go. When's the let's go moment. Yeah, there's no magic moment, I suppose. It's a bit iterative. Um, But I think you've got to have some sense of what the the issue actually is. So one approach that I teach in my class is that when we think about trying to understand a problem, there's actually three aspects of a problem. And so I'd argue you shouldn't jump into it until you can answer all three. So the three, the first is the core problem. What's the core problem that you yourself are solving? Where are you taking action specifically? So if we think about climate justice, huge, broad issue. What's the slice of it that you are going to take action on, whether that's in your local community, um, in a small subsect, wh- whatever it is, where, what's your core problem? And then you want to identify the problem consequences. So put another way, if you don't take action, if we don't address this core problem, what are some of the externalities that will come as a result one year, three years, five years from now? What will the things that will happen on an individual level, organizational level, community level? But then thirdly, what are the root causes? I think you can't really take action until you understand some of those root causes. It could be historical, economic, cultural, technological, the underpinnings of this problem. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be thinking about root causes in your first solution or in your first step. But I do think it's crucial that you have a sense of the core problem, the consequences, and those root causes. When you do that, you have a much better sense of the actual problem that you're solving. And I think at that point, you can then go forward with a bit more confidence. Back to what we said in the very beginning, I wanted to, uh, so I've read a little bit, I anticipated that you might say some of those things, and I was trying to think of an example from my own experience that to get your feedback on how, how well we did or what we didn't do well. So I work on a university campus in uh, security services, and about 10 years ago, we uh, were feeling that something needed to change. Just didn't really know why, but that we had to start showing up differently. So we sent out a group of other students to talk to our primary constituents, being our students, to say, hey, when you think about campus security, what do you think? And when the mic went to them, they said, we don't. We don't ever think about you. That hurt. And so then the next, the follow-up question was, if you had to, though, like if you were really forced to, to dig in, 
what would you think about? And they said, well, if we had to, we wouldn't know what you could do if you could help. Uh, why would we call you? Like, there's no reference point, I guess. If I, need, mm. if I needed help boosting my car or my battery died, maybe <laughs> then, but I don't know what I would do. And, the, and the, the third one was that we didn't make them feel safe. The kinds of things we were wearing, the, the body armor on the outside of the uniforms, the handcuffs, the batons, that actually in, in the quest to make the campus safer, we were in the way. And so basically our performance review was irrelevant, inaccessible, and unapproachable. Scary. So, so what, when we're thinking about those core problems, that's what we started to learn. Uh, and the consequence of not changing for us would be that we would we, we'd be outsourced, but also that campus would not be safe, that people just wouldn't have access to it. So we started to try and make changes. And what we did is we used some of those core problems as places to start, but, but really probably five years in, uh, we were just attacking the problem and we didn't have a good grip of the principles required to shift those. We just knew we were going after the problem, almost like scratching off list. Any advice when you've kind of got a list of problems and you're ready to start, what's the best way to, to sort of get that energy around where and, and why? First, what I like about what you were doing, it's straight out of the work done by Andrea Titus and Juliet Bork. So they look at what are the principles, the approaches that lead to feelings of inclusion. And so they've identified six different aspects of inclusive leadership. But the two that I find most interesting, and there's a powerful intersection between them, is humility and awareness of bias. And so it's important to have each of those individually. What they find is that when you have both humility and awareness of bias, it leads to 25 percentage points increase in feelings of inclusion. So in other words, we all have biases. But when you also have the humility to say, okay, but like maybe there's something I could do about this or I actually want to listen, I want to learn, that actually opens up feelings of inclusion. So I think that's the first thing is to say like you went in like with that open mind and when they told you, for instance, about the body armor, you were willing to take some action on that. So I think that's a good first step. But then from there in terms of like how do you get started, you know, we can feel really overwhelmed when it comes to change when you have this list of like 15 things you have to do. And sometimes momentum helps. You know, I think about this as a silly example, but uh, my co-founder at Start Some Good, Tom Dawkins, he would use a big uh, to-do list guy. And he would start every to-do list with the first item would be create to-do list. That way he would cross off to-do list Amazing. and then he would have some momentum. <laughs> um, so there is some aspect of like just getting started. So sometimes we can get paralyzed because we just say like, look, there's 15 things we have to change. How do we even know how to get started? So if you have no idea and there's no hypothesis here, it doesn't hurt to at least try something. But I think the mindset I would go into here is based off of research done by some Italian researchers that I love. They did randomized control trials of entrepreneurs in an incubator in Italy. And they just did one simple intervention. They said, okay, so half of the group, you just go on as normal, normal incubation activities. The other half, all that they did was they taught them the scientific method. So they taught them hypothesis testing and so on. What they found is that in the group of entrepreneurs that had learned hypothesis testing, they were more likely to make a pivot. So in other words, to change direction. And also they, in this case, because this is a business context, they're more likely to generate higher revenues. And I really like this because this is a reminder that if you're a scientist, you're sitting in a lab. If you try something, the experiment doesn't work, you titrate chemicals, it doesn't come out perfectly. You're not saying, oh, I'm a terrible scientist, like I really failed. But you go, no, okay, well, my hypothesis didn't quite work here. And then you learn, you iterate, you pivot. And so I take a lot of confidence from that, which is coming up with hypotheses, testing those hypotheses, but then taking the sting out of failure because you're curious. And so if you try something, it doesn't quite work. You go, okay, well, here's what we learned from that. Now let's try the, the second thing. And rather than just going completely in the dark, 
thinking more like a scientist can sometimes pay off. Okay, that that is great. And uh, we definitely like the scientific approach. Uh, learning what doesn't work is absolutely just as useful as learning what can work. So to go down the rabbit hole of change a little bit. So as everybody knows, listening to this podcast, Disorienting Dilemma is about how would we live our lives as though we were in an inclusive world. So we're trying to take this idea, these ideas of belonging and acceptance and a with posture rather than doing things to people or for people or just ignoring people. And as part of that, one of the things that we always try to anchor this conversation is what if you're not from the part of the population with easy access to systemic power? So in the West or North America, anyways, we would call that white or the white community or power group. And so some of the, and I, and I understand if you're white, it doesn't always mean you have tons of power, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something a little bit more uh, systems facing. So individuals hired into a company, their mid-level leader, maybe they represent, or let's say they do represent an individual facing tons of different points of intersectionality. Like this person is a woman, she's black, and she, her lived experience may not line up with all the other senior folks who came from Ivy League schools and whatnot. The first thing you suggest is, look, if you want to be doing change, you should consider not waiting for permission. Okay. So this person historically has only been invited to place of power upon receiving permission. For, for this person, let's say, it may not be that obvious. I, I may be painting things a little too simplistically, but I just want to see if we can figure out how this might, these principles in this approach, sitting with the problem, gathering people around you, particularly taking action, how this applies in that position. And uh, you've had a lot of folks come through the class and representing amazing, diverse lived experiences. It's a great lineup of individuals. You can see it. Anybody listening can check it out on the website. We'll put the link in. But the, here are the three bullets. Stop waiting for permission. How does that work for this part of the population? Leveraging the power of networks. Okay, the networks are fairly black and white, literally. And thirdly, leading with purpose. Now, what if the purpose I hold to runs counter to the published purpose or to the unspoken rules in the workplace? So my purpose is to become more active and to allow employees to speak their minds about things that maybe are not equitable and not inclusive, that kind of thing. So these three bullets, how do they apply to somebody who just doesn't have a LinkedIn network that they can reach out to and has not been historically invited to just without permission, start making changes? How, how does it work? I so appreciate that question, Chris. Thank you. So, I mean, of course I come from this, I'm a white male myself and I'm a big believer, as you saw with the guest speakers, that you can't be what you can't see. And so yeah. I try to give my students a wide variety of different approaches, different individuals who've led change in different yeah. contexts. Uh, and so perhaps to address your question, uh, I'll tell a story, which is also a story I cover in the book, which is a story of Carolyn Davis. So Carolyn Davis is a sales associate at Walmart uh, in Bayboro, North Carolina. So a town of just over a thousand people. And she's a mother, also a grandmother. And she had a colleague who's another sales associate. And she was expecting, uh, which is a, a joyous moment. But as many parents, especially moms, face this terrible situation of, well, I need to take care of myself, take care of my baby, recover from birth. And there's pressure for me to get back to the workplace right away. 
And so Carolyn kind of leaning into her experience as a mom, as a grandma, realized, hey, this doesn't seem quite fair what my colleague is up against. She did a bit of research and she found that uh, Walmart executives, they got pretty decent parental leave, both genders, whereas sales associates got not very much. And so she started off very small. So we think about like traditional power dynamics and kind of intersectional identities. So a working class black woman. So kind of, you know, a lot of identities. And she led from where she was. So she started reaching out to some people just in her local store and tried to understand, again, from empathy saying, hey, how are you also dealing with this? She found like there's a number of people at her store that were dealing with this. From there, she started talking with some other associates and she started to build a little bit more momentum. From there, she said, okay, maybe there's something here. And she started to do a petition. Now, what's so interesting is she says that when people were signing the petition, some people were willing to put their names to it. But again, recognizing power dynamics, not everyone was willing to. So a number of people would just send her emails privately and just say, you know, hey, thank you for doing this. I'm not comfortable signing, but, but thank you. But it started growing and growing and growing, starting off with small steps. Again, no one gave her permission to step up. She kind of had this lens of service, took small steps, small steps until she got to 100,000 signatures. When she had 100,000 signatures, she had built a kind of a groundswell of support behind her all through small steps. No formal network, right, other than her kind of network in her store. But this idea was really starting to catch on. By that point, she delivered all the signatures to the CEO of Walmart, and then there became some public pressure, and she actually got invited to speak at the, the shareholders meeting. So there she is stepping in front of a group that the populated about 20,000 people at the meeting. It's about 20 times the population of her hometown. Oh and she gosh, was sort of, you know, amazing. taking a, a gulp, taking a deep breath, and she steps on stage. But then she very passionately, profoundly makes the case for why equality between sales associates and Walmart executives is the right thing to do. Now, in telling the story, change doesn't come instantaneously for every Carolyn. There will be plenty of stories that don't work out. I'm cognizant of that. But she did catch on within a few months, Walmart changed the policies and she led change. Now, the way she led change would probably be very different from if there were, you know, a VP at Walmart that fought for the same rights. So where we come from changes our approach to leading change, but it is possible. We just have to have those lenses and kind of start from where we are. It's a great example. I love when you say those are the, the small steps. So you really, that is a great story. It breaks it down. Is there any advice to folks who, while they're on that change journey, get tired, get fatigued, it starts to get really hard. How do you keep energy? How do you, how do you keep that going from your experience? Yeah, I think there's two things. So the first, I go back to the advice that one of my guest speakers gave to my students. This is Sid Espinoza. He's the first ever Latino mayor of Palo Alto, California. And at the time, he was head of philanthropy at Microsoft. Uh, and so a student asked him basically that exact question. And his response, you know, when he first answered this way, I thought, oh, wow, did he just like deflate all of these change makers? But actually, they told me afterwards that it's some of the best advice they've received. All right, let's deflate our audience right now. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> share, please share. So he said is any of the big problems you're trying to solve, you're not going to solve them in your lifetime. He was talking specifically about uh, homelessness, the unhoused population, saying you're not going to solve it on your own. So instead of thinking it as a race you're running by yourself, start thinking about change as a relay race. So think about how can you pick up the baton from the people that have come before you? How can you move it forward in a meaningful way during your career, during your 20, 30, 40, 50 years? And how can you make sure that you are a good steward to pass the baton off to the next generation that will come after you? How can you be prepared to be a good mentor, a good advisor, a good support to move things forward? And so again, here I was sort of in my professor mode being like, oh no, did these students just feel like they can't create change? But no, it's actually a really empowering message because 
it speaks to where they are. It speaks to the reality, which is that my students, the readers of the book, want to take on big substantive change challenges. And the more we can think of it as a relay race, the more we can think of it as change making being a team sport, the better off we will all be. That's that's great. And I think alongside of that, I'd love to just explore for a second here. Understanding geological time versus biological time is quite different. Change in the universe takes millions and millions of years, whereas myself, you know, a matter of days, I can experience some significant changes. When we think about change in the world or change that we'd like to bring in the world, bringing this network around, sitting with the problem, thinking it through, figuring out what the point is, and then putting in a perspective of years and years, decades and decades and, and our part in that process, I can see that like knowing that I'm jumping into the timeline, I'm contributing some change towards a better future that I, as I understand it and can see it, but I can actually achieve way more change in the same topic inside of myself. So there's this sort of, I want to be a change maker in the world and I want to be changed in my self as well. And that there's far more agency to manage the internal change that happens as I relate to my presuppositions and understandings and just basic information about what that issue is out there and begin to think about how am I complicit in it? What are my behaviors that are contributing to it? What are the blind spots that I personally have that are reflected in society, but I can get at them immediately? Could you share with us a little bit about kind of those parallel paths of change in the world and change in ourselves and and how those two things uh, kind of go together? Yeah, so important. So going into this, there's not a lot of studies on change making. So change making as a field, which I'm trying to create here. And so, of course, I live in the business and the academia worlds, which are very data driven. And so I created the first ever longitudinal study of the development of change makers. It's called the Change Maker Index. If you read the book, you can actually take the Change Maker Index for yourself and sort of see where your strengths are and see. Your I have your book, so I'm going to do that. <laughs> so. What I find, I have students that take my class, they take the index before the class starts, and then again at the end of the class, and we follow up with them every year onwards, and we try to track their development as change makers. Oh, wow. And so there's, there's two things that are great about it. So one is we can say the data are conclusive. You can absolutely become statistically significant. You can become a change maker in as short as 15 weeks. Like the data is super clear on that. I went into okay. it as a scientist, not expecting anything, but just with curiosity. And so it's, it's very clear. And I hope that gives people some confidence, but also gives us some insights into the greatest areas for development. And there are a couple of places where there's outsized impact to creating change. So in other words, having awareness of bias, that's one of the things like when change makers tend to have that, that leads to a number of really good changes as a result. When people learn how to influence without formal authority, that's correlated with a number of really good developments as well. To your question, I absolutely agree. Internal change is super important, can happen much more quickly. And there's a couple of things that seem to be sort of catalysts to helping you on your change maker journey. Yeah. And we find that as people take that internal journey based on their experiences and do some of that reflection that you're talking about, sitting with the problem, we may think about it as critical reflection. Disorienting dilemmas are where our experiences don't line up with our expectations And the more we can get to see those and then challenge the expectations, the more we can be kind of getting to see the invisible things inside of us. And we have found that it produces a lot more energy and resource to keep working on the change that we want to address out in the world. When I hear you talk about uh, see those things that are inside, I'm thinking about the contagious 
quality uh, of change. And yeah. so it, it kind of starts lonely in some spaces. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you're a bit of a visionary. You see this, you see the opportunity for change, but for those who have, you know, that audacity of hope or they, they can glimpse something different as it starts to come into focus a bit, people start to rally around the change. We see whole governments shift and politically you see change. So what is it about change that draws people into that to want to be a part of it? I think there's a couple levels to address this. The, the, the first is, as I read about in the book, I think there's three ways to rapidly accelerate your impact as a change maker. So the first, of course, is to become a change maker. If you read the book, check, done, you're on your way. The second is to surround yourself with other change makers. So you get a lot of support from community, certainly something I've felt quite a bit. And the third is, can you help other people become change makers? Here, I think, for instance, about Laura Weidman Power. She's the co-founder of Code 2040. They work to close the racial wealth gap in the technology industry. They teach people how to code, of course. They also teach sort of change maker skills. And by doing so, it's creating ripples of change throughout the technology industry. If you create change in the technology industry, throughout society, and so on. So I think that's a model that works um, quite nice as we think about leading change. But then in terms of like how change can be really contagious, I love the work done by Nobel. That's N-O-B-L. And they write about the three types of people you meet while leading change. And so the three types are the champions, the fence-sitters, and the cynics. Oh, that's Chris Jarvis, the cynic. Yeah, Chris. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Say, more, say more about those. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll talk, talk about, about me. The yeah, cynic. Nice. Yeah. So uh, first, the champions, those are people that are excited. They're bought in off the bat, and you want to get them enrolled, delegate to them, engage them in the change. We tend to spend a lot of time on the fence-sitters, but Nobel says, no, hang on, don't go to them quite yet. Instead, focus on the cynics. Focus on the cynics. And what they say, which really changed my perspective, they said often cynics are just disappointed idealists, people who believe in change, but they've seen so many change efforts come and go that they've given up hope. They think, well, this, why is this change any different? And so they said, if you can get them on board and you can kind of see them for where they are, not just as this like nitpicky person that doesn't believe in what you're doing, but they want to believe, they just have reason to not believe then you can start getting some change to happen. So if you can get your champions on board, convert some cynics, then the fence-sitters will jump as well. So I like that as a model to think about how you can engage different types of people involved in the change journey in different ways. I love that. You said step one starts with reading the book. So I'm going to have to do that. Um, and so, And we recommend it to take the test. So take the we'll test. While we're on the topic of things to do, Jake, besides read the book, take the test, what else? Alex, can we do? Is, is there a website where we can find out more information, download some guides and that kind of thing? Sometimes books come with discussion guides and that kind of thing. So I don't know if this one will or does. So just anything that you've got for us to use as a resource. Oh, a, a ton. Yes. Yeah. So go to changemakerbook.com. You'll find everything there. And one of the things I've been really heartened by is how many people want to read this book in community. I didn't expect that, but I love that. And so to meet the demand, I've created a book club guide uh, because so many people are reading oh, yeah. it together. Cool. And so, you know, Chris, you've seen this at the end of each chapter, I have a change yep. maker challenge. So something people can try out and think even more powerful to do it in community, do it with one another. And I've also got some discussion questions for you so you can read along with each other, support each other in your development as change makers and explore some questions and challenges together. Perfect. Okay. For those who are listening as we wrap up here today and they're like, look, I would love to make a change in this area. They've just got a ton of energy. They want to do it any last minute things to say to encourage that person? 
Yeah, let me just say, the world has never been more ready for you. That's the way I start the book. That's the way I start my class. And I mm. firmly believe that, that there's never been a better time, a more important time than right now to be a change maker. Change is really hard. Change is really challenging. You can look at the scale and the opportunities and the challenges in the world and you can feel really hopeless. But I hope you'll find some way to still feel a little bit of hope, still feel reason, still feel some agency and to decide to take action. The world needs you and I can't wait to see what you do next. That's awesome. Thanks so yeah. much. Thank you so much, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. This is a joy to be with you. This has been a Podstarter production. production.